Welcome to 1001 Radio Crime Solvers Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we want 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to be your favorite place to go to enjoy a great mix of vintage detective shows from the golden age of radio. The scripts were great, the action was hot, and even the old commercials are enjoyable. And now, another episode of 1001 Radio Crime Solvers is ready to go. Enjoy! Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time, a wrestler on the skids, a quick-change artist in an alley, and a girl with an eye for angles all met destruction. Because a hundred thousand easy bucks caught him in a stranglehold which none of them wanted to break. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. We bring you tonight's exciting story, The Stranglehold. Sometimes men climb all over themselves for a purpose, sometimes for relaxation, and most times for no reason at all. Take professional wrestling. I watched in the ringside while two gargantuan hosts contorted their features in mock agony and bulged muscles at each other on a mat surrounded by tears of onlookers screaming through their half-chewed popcorn. While the fans, as usual, howled for blood, booed the decision, hooted the departing contestants, and waited for the next comic act, laughingly called the main event. I went again over the letter I'd received two hours ago by messenger from one Manny Faber. It had included a ringside ticket to L.A. Wrestling Arena, a check for $200, and the request that I catch as much as I could stomach of the match between John, better known as Peachy King, and Jules Caesar, the Emperor of Brooklyn, after which I was to come to Faber's house for instructions that involved John Keene plus 100000 bucks of Manny Faber's money. So I watched a little closer as something that looked like a Sherman tank in a toga and leather sandals crowned with an olive wreath lumbered into the ring and sneered at the crowd. And since I'd long ago given up wrestling as a sport, I turned to the fan next to me wearing a derby on the bridge of his nose, waved a cloud of cigar smoke aside, and got some information. Oh, Caesar? Ah, you get your money's worth out of him, all right. Hey, what about this John Keene? How does he stack up? Ha-ha, <laughs> Peachy! You kidding me, the bomb? Stinko! No show! Uh-oh! A bring down! Look, look, they're fixing the ring up for him now. Get this! <laughs> What's that, flowers? Yeah, yeah, peach blossoms! ha <laughs> He threw peach blossoms all over his corner. Eh, <laughs> hey, what stuff? Two years ago, the stuff was okay, but now it's tired, you know what I mean? Hey, he won't even put on a show, little old rapper. He's still called a champ, isn't he? Champ! Him! <laughs> he won't even be a laugh anymore. He's afraid of getting his pretty nose bent. What a bum. Hey, see, so time up and not. Here comes one guy. Yo-ho, Peachy! <laughs> you bum! Ah! See what I mean with that profile? He ought to be a ribbon clerk instead of a wrestler. Yeah. Hey, what's that on the back of his robe? Are you kidding? That's a big peach, of course. Embroidered in gold on black silk. How do you like... Yeah, no. yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. Hey, look. I hear them robes cost him a thousand bucks a piece. He thinks they make him hot stuff with the dame. Maybe they do. Who's the brunette in there talking with him? How should I know? There's always something like that. And I look pipe down. Will you make your talk so much? Oh, lady, turn that gentleman the feature event on tonight's program. A free fall, no limit contest of a wrestling. In this corner at 278 
contender from the Atlantic seaboard, an emperor of Brooklyn, the Jules Caesar. Are you kidding me? And in this corner, at 225 pounds, the undisputed champion of the Western Hemisphere, John Pichikina. The match got underway and Peachy started out of his corner. A good-looking brunette shouted something at him that stopped him cold. He turned to glare at her and Caesar slapped a hank on him that put Peachy flat on his back for fall number one. Three minutes later, with his head in the gilligan, Peachy was well on his way to the mat again for fall number two, which was enough for me, so I got up to leave. The brunette, I noticed, was leaving too. And at the end of the exit tunnel, we came out side by side. You got a match? Huh? Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you. It's a mess, isn't it, huh? What's a mess? <laughs> The way things are going inside there. Oh. Peachy ought to change his line of work, don't you think? Oh, what's it to you? A laugh so far. What's it to you? You said something to him that knocked him for a loop, baby. What was it? A personal matter. Oh, how personal? Oh, about like that. <clears throat> Thank you, and step down, Philip Marlowe. And you'd better step out, too, or I'll whistle for a gendarme. <laughs> Nighty-night, nosey. <laughs> So saying, she flashed a couple of daggers at me from her snapping black eyes, spun on four-and-a-half-inch red patent leather heel, and was gone. So I drove up to Hollywoodland in the house of 2000 Beechwood Drive, where I was to meet my client, Manny Faber. The house looked like a two-room cottage from the street, but it ran for three stories down the back side of the hill. And all I did was touch the bell when the door flew open. Uh, you're Marlowe, uh -huh. am I right? Come on in, Marlowe. I'm Manny Faber, head of Faber Transcriptions Incorporated. Produce radio shows, you know. Yeah. So you saw him, eh? You saw that big, crooked, four-fleshing, stupid, mat-pounding mastodon that calls himself Johnny Peach Keen, huh? Yeah, I saw him. Yeah. Oh, have a chair. No, thanks. Well, what do you think? You just summed it up. What's that got to do with your 100,000 bucks, Mr. Faber? You haven't seen the late editions? No. They're full of it. Peachy Keen is suing me for 100 Gs for slander. <laughs> How can you slander a guy like Peachy? It's impossible. I know that, and you know it. But does a court of law know it? No. In fact, they're going to make it stick. Now, how'd it happen? I'll tell you. A very sweet guy named Frank Gaynor. Yeah, I know. I'm a sports commentator. Yes, yes. He's been doing five a week on my label and going big. But three days ago, what we've been expecting for months finally happened. Rest his soul. A weak ticker. And just like that, he dropped dead on the street. Heart failure. Yeah, I read about it. Well, Frank always kept five broadcasts ahead, see? Made tape recordings in his own little studio. So I've been running his last five shows as a final tribute to him. Well, what happened? Uh, yesterday, the whole 15 minutes of his broadcast was devoted to ripping apart John Peachy Keen. Here, listen. Uh, I've got the tape here on the machine. Mm. This is one part. A blight on the sports world. And furthermore, I have proof that Get John Peachy Keen has sold out to the highest bidder in small-time gambling circles in his last three matches. Now, I know for a fact that he has become so blatant in his underhanded dealings that even as dubious a business as professional wrestling cannot stand the stink. And officials have threatened to bar him from the ring. Strong I can stuff. show beyond a doubt that John Peachy Keene has falsified medical reports to evade tough competition, and that he eventually... Yep, yeah. it goes on like that, Marlowe. Some of it opinion, most of it fact. And it's the facts that my lawyers tell me I've got to find the proof for or be a dead duck. That's why I asked you to come up here. I... Oh, excuse me, this sure. is probably Ruth, Frank's wife. Nice <laughs> show people once. Oh, hello, Ruth. Come in, honey. Hello, Manny. I haven't been able to find a thing yet. I can't imagine where Frank got his information. I... Oh, Ruth, uh, shake hands with Mr. Marlowe. He's the detective I told you about. 
Uh, Mrs. Gaynor, Marlowe. How do you do, Mr. Marlowe? Glad to know you, Mrs. Gaynor. Manny, here's the key to Frank's private studio at 6122 Sunset. It might be a good place for Mr. Marlowe's start. Yes, all his files and equipment are there. Frank didn't like to work at home or at my plant on the strip. Wanted his own private setup. Uh, we looked there, but maybe we missed something. Okay, I'll see what I can find. Oh, by the way, do either of you happen to know a good-looking brunette connected in some way with Peachy? No, but he's quite a ladies' man, I understand. Why, Marlowe? It's just a hunch. I saw him talking to one tonight, a fireball. May mean nothing. Well, I hope you'll be able to locate the proof of Frank's statements, Marlowe. We've got to find it for Frank. Uh, <clears throat> uh, also, it'll break my heart to pay a hundred grand to a no-good meat heaver named Peachy Keen. I promised Faber I'd keep in touch and left. I found Gaynor's little recording studio tucked into the second-floor corner of a small office building on Sunset. Unlocked the heavy soundproof door and went in. The room had a busy, cluttered look, as though Gaynor himself had just stepped out. A row of filing cabinets and a desk sat along one wall, and opposite them was the glassed-in booth with the tape recorders and microphone by which the solitary sportscaster had canned his radio programs. I dug through the files and found a folder labeled John Keene that held only a sketchy history of the wrestler. Some publicity pictures and a few clippings, one of which rated a long second look because it was topped by a picture of the same brunette I'd seen at the ringside. It was captioned, Carla Bennett leaves for West Coast. I started to read the story when there was a sound at the door behind me and the lights went out. Don't move, mighty. I'll kill you on the spot if you do. Up against that window, you make a perfect target, you know. So don't try anything cute. What do you want? A little more than I'm getting, it's what. I'm entitled to it, I am. The service is rendered, you might say. I can't help you, Buster. You've come to the wrong man. No, but not to the wrong place, huh, mighty? So, first things first, like I always say. Turn around, mighty. It's not. Blotel, get me. Sleepy boy. showing up here to put this... Ooh. <clears throat> put the slug on me. Uh, Limey? Yeah. Who was it? Why'd he slug you? Good questions, Faber. Hey, does the name Carla Bennett ring any bells? Carla Bennett? Yeah. No, no, I Ooh. never heard of her. I... Huh? Oh, just a minute, Marlowe. Here's Ruth. Huh? Marlowe, I remember that name. Yeah? I'm sure Frank interviewed her once. Carla Bennett used to be Mrs. John Keene. Peachy's ex-wife? Yes, I'm positive. Why, is she mixed up in this? I don't know. Limey, who slugged me, apparently took a newspaper clipping about her when he left. At least it's gone. Marlowe, this Limey, was that all he was after? Yeah, he said he wanted more than he was getting. Hey, but look, paper made this call. What do you want? To tell you that he'll be out checking on a few things himself. That's all. Oh. By the way, Ruth, any idea where this Bennett dame might be found? No, I haven't, Marlowe. Oh. I think she was staying at some woman's hotel on Vermont Avenue when Frank interviewed her at that time. Vermont. But that was over a year ago. Maybe she's a lady of habit. I'll try it anyway. Thanks, Ruthie. There were three exclusively female hotels on Vermont. And the second one I called had a Carla Bennett registered. So 
I went out to my car and babied my aching head down Vermont to the Victoria Plaza Ladies Only Hotel. The lobby was done in ivory and pink with desk clerk to match, whom the nameplate tagged as Mr. Seymour Pratt. I started over but stopped when I spotted about an acre of peach-colored suede coat wrapped around John Peachy Keen himself, lumbering up the stairs at the back of the lobby. Mr. Pratt saw him at the same time and darted from behind the desk like an angry canary after a rhinoceros. Just a minute, you. This is the ladies' hotel. So what? I gotta see the one in 212. Not this way, you don't. Why, it's after midnight. If Miss Bennett wishes to come down to the lobby, that's her affair. But no men are allowed upstairs after 10 p.m. Okay, okay. How can I get in touch with her? Use the house phone, naturally. Over there in that booth. I'll go right back to the board and plug you in. I'll be with you in just a moment, sir. Ducky, I'll wait. A call for you, Miss Bennett. Good listening, huh? What? Now, see, here, you know perfectly well you're not supposed to come back to this desk. This is for employees only. What about eavesdropping? Is that for employees only, too? Oh, uh, why, how dare you Save it, Seymour. The guy in the booth there is a professional wrestler. If he finds out you're listening in, he'll tear your arm off and beat you to death with it. Better let me take over here. Give me the earphones. Now, wait Come a on, minute. give it to me. Uh, okay. Now, sit there like a good boy. Keep the key open and your trap shut. Well, no surprise. Where are you now, John? In the lobby, in the phone booth. You better come down, Carla. No, no John, I'm tired. Will you call me tomorrow? No, wait a minute. Co- what do you mean by that crack you made tonight when I was in the ring? Well, just what I said. I want a nice big slice of that 100000 you're getting from Manny Faber. Why, you're crazy. What makes you think I'd give you one lousy penny? <laughs> you will, gladly. You see, John, I know all about those visits you made to the Lyceum Theater. Bottle has come back to L.A., hasn't it, darling? Why, you sneaking... Oh, shut up. After the life you led me for four years, you big ape, I'm entitled to all I can get. And that'll be plenty. So I advise you to run right back now and tell your friend that I know all about your little scheme. And talk it over good, John. I'll be waiting to hear from you. All right. I'll do just that. And you're sure going to be sorry you stuck your nose into this one, Carla. Real interesting. Are you quite, quite finished now? Yes, and you were a big, big help, Mr. Pratt. Oh, there he goes, peachy suede coat and all. So long, Seymour. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... Horace Height and his famous Youth Opportunity Program have joined Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen, Red Skelton, Jack Benny, and the other top-ranking entertainers who make CBS Sunday nights a must. Enjoy these 30 minutes when Horace Height takes over on most of these same stations Sunday night this fall. Tune in, tune in this fall For the show that you love best of all Listen carefully Here's the address It's CBS, CBS now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Stranglehold. When Peachy Keene slammed out of the phone booth, he was burned to a crisp. He stomped out of the woman's hotel via the back door that opened onto the parking lot. And when I got there, it was already out of sight. I stopped in the shadows to figure out which way he'd gone, but skipped that as the back door opened again. This time it was Carla Bennett. She ran across the lot, hopped into a new green convertible, and got as far as switching on the lights before still another character pranced into the headlight beams like a veteran ham making for upstage center. Miss Bennett! Hey, Miss Bennett, wait! I gotta talk to you! I couldn't tell where the first one came from. I only heard it. 
It brought the little man up on his toes and arched him like a drawn bow. I saw the flash of the second one. It came from the alley and crumpled it into a pile. A moment later, a more roared, and I ran to where I could see with a pair of taillights twisting onto the side street. It was all the good it did me. I went back to the body of the little man as Carla Bennett climbed out of her car. She was white from shock, and in the headlights, her makeup was garish. It belonged on a clown. The back alley harlequinade was suddenly very grim. He was shot, Mr. Wright, in front of me. Who's the little guy, Carla? I, I don't know. I never saw him before. I... You know my name? Yeah. We met at the wrestling arena early at night. You remember? Marlowe, private detective. Now, come on, Carla. Let's have it. What's his name? I don't know, I tell you. Okay. We'd better find out fast. Let's take a look at his wallet. No! It's none of my business. I'm getting out of here. Wait a minute. He wanted to talk to you pretty badly, baby. Very likely about a hundred grand. Huh? If I were you, I'd stick around. You've got awfully big ears, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah. Better to hear phone conversations. What? This guy's an actor. He's got an equity card. Name is Seth Cameo. Mean anything? Not to me. Unless... Unless what? Unless he happens to work at the Lyceum Theater? As you said, Carla, Vaudeville's back in town, and that brings up another point you better explain. what's going on out here anyway? I thought I heard Ooh. shots. You did, Pratt. They came from the alley oh, there. Oh, and... so it's you again. I might have... That man. That man there on the ground. Good heavens, is... Is he dead? Yeah, he's murdered. Oh, no. Help! Help me! Murder! Help That me! jerk! I'm getting out of here. Not alone, you're not. I'm going with you. Listen, Big Ears, I can take care of myself. Will you be here? That's not the point, sister. I still want to talk to you. Get in. I go out that way to the street, not too fast. All right. Since you're running things, where are we going? Lyceum Theater. On the way, you can tell me why your ex-husband Peachy's been hanging around there. I don't know why. Who's the friend he's been seeing? Was it Cameo? I don't know that either. Now, look, for Pete's sake, do I have to draw you a picture? A man was shot down right in front of you. Doesn't that convince you? You're bucking the same opposition, baby, and believe me, this is no time to hold out. Not in this league. I'm not. All right. Well, that stuff you overheard on the phone was pure bluff. I accidentally ran into John a couple of days ago near the stage door of the Lyceum. He... Well, he acted funny like he was waiting for somebody and very nervous about it. You didn't see who it was? No. I waited until three girls and two men had come out one after another, but they were cagey. I couldn't tell which one John was waiting for. Mm. And then I heard about this slander suit of his, and I figured something was screwy. So you took a swing in the dark tonight and connected, huh? Good and solid. When I told him on the phone to go back to his friend, I knew he'd be just stupid enough to do it, and that's why I came out so fast. I wanted to follow him and find out who else was involved before I got in too far. You're already in too far, baby. You got more nerve than good sense, even for a hundred grand. You don't believe me? Ask Cameo. There's the theater park here. We'll walk over. Look, tell me something, Big Ears. Suppose Seth Cameo did work here. What's it going to prove? All depends on what we find to go with it. He was killed to keep him from upsetting the apple cart. One way he could have done that would be to have proof of what Frank Gaynor said in his broadcast about Peachy. Sure, but fitting a vaudeville actor at the Lyceum into that slot doesn't make sense. No, but... Yeah, there it is. Cameo's placket. We were right. Yeah. Seth Cameo, the one-man all-star cast... See Lionel Barrymore, Betty Davis, Harry Drucker, Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, and many others. Denise Glenn played in a split-second changes by the world's most versatile one-man cast. Seth sure, he was a mimic. A guy like that would have dialects, lots of them. So? So maybe Seth Cameo was the boy who slugged me in Gaynor's studio. He was careful to turn out the light first, then he threw that limey jive at me to toss me off the track. And what's more, he... Uh-oh, we got company. Where? There's a little geezer over there. What are you doing here? Theater's closed. Last show's been over for hours. I know. You're the night watchman. That's right. Now, you better move along, kids. No loitering around theater. Now, just a minute, Pop. This Seth Cameo, does he have a limey number in his act? Why don't you come back tomorrow and ask him? 
Well, that's tougher than you think, mister. How about it? Does he do a limey? Limey? Well, now that she... Cockney, uh, English. No, don't think so. Might have at one time, though. Been in the business for years. Good man, too. Best quick changer I ever seen. Mm. Has he got a scrapbook or something in his dressing room, do you know? Well, yeah, yes, he has. Got a box there with every bill he's ever played on in it. Most actors do. But the theater's all closed now, fella. Well, you've got a key, haven't you? Look, Pop, it's important. We've got to find out right away. No, nope, I'm sorry, son. You can't do it. Look, I... it's real important. Take a good look. Very important. Ten bucks. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I guess it wouldn't do any harm if you just want to look. The old man slid the ten into his pocket like he wouldn't admit it even to himself. And led us in the stage door, down the stairs, and with his flashlight along the dark hallway to Seth Cameo's dressing room. He unlocked it, reached in, and turned on a tired little lamp, and pointed out a box on a trunk near the back. We picked our way over to it through a jumble of costumes that had been period pieces at the turn of the century. The box was lined with sentimental posters, and inside was a man's life, and stacks of programs and playbills. Began with a crisp current appearance and then ran back through all of Seth Cameo's dusty yesterdays. Didn't take long. Maybe five minutes. Here. This is it, Marlowe. Exactly what you're asking. Let's see that. Parthenon Theatre, Kansas City, September 1940. Seth Cameo of London. In Piccadilly Circus, Majesty Navy Limehouse. Sure. This is it, baby. Seth Cameo and Limey were one and the same. And where does that get you? Yeah, it gives me an idea. It gives me one, too. Now, you found what you wanted. Now, let's put everything back like it was and get out of here. In a minute, Pop. I want to check something else. Now, look, honey. This is dead against all rules. I'm getting jittery. Wait a minute. Hold it. I heard something upstairs. Did you lock the outside door, Pop? Oh, come now, fella. Be a sport. That's an old stunt that oh. just won't work. That door's got a snap latch. Shut up. And... I heard it, too, that time. There is somebody up there. Huh? Yeah, you're right. Dad, blame it, I was afraid of something like this. Now, 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 look, you two, you stay right here and don't touch nothing till I get back, you hear? I'll go see what it was. Better switch off the lights, Carla. The brakes are going against us. What do you mean? Well, all this after-hours theater business can't be coincidence. Well, he came upstairs, there's trouble on his mind. Oh. You asked for a payoff, baby, and that's what you're going to get. Only the bank won't handle it, the morgue will. Hey, you, what you doing here? You the night watchman around here? Oh, Marlo, it's John. Yeah, pretty keen, no pun intended. Take it easy. Here. Now you go on. Get out. Don't lie to me, Grandpa. Our car is parked across the street. Now where is she? Come on, I mean business. Now listen here. Don't you give me none of your sass, son. You just clear out there. Crazy old fool. You got the watchman. You better clear out, Carly. He'll be down here in another minute. Now look, go up that way and cross the stage. Go to 2000 Beechwood. It's the one place Peachy won't go. Manny favors. And stay there till I call. You understand? Never but... mind. Beat it, will you? Go on. Be careful, big ears. Carla moved off into the darkness. I saw at the other end of the hall the inquisitive beam from the flashlight poking into dark corners as Keen eased down the stairs. I got my gun into my hand, plastered my shoulders against the wall beside the open door, and waited. I didn't have long to wait. I heard him stop in the hall outside, and then the beam of the flashlight crept over the floor and up to the wall, and then slowly, carefully circled the door frame. Carla? I heard him moving closer. Then the barrel of a snub-nosed revolver inched into the room. I know you're in here, Carla. I waited until I could see the big fist wrapped around the gun. And I brought my 38 down hard! His gun flew to the floor and I swung again for his head! Why, you... The rest will only blink and lunge for me. I'll kill you! 
That's enough. Hey, see? I may need it. That's your problem, big man. Fall down, will you? Go down and stay down. Wow. You got to chop that guy down like a tree. It had been short but vicious. The one punch he'd landed had shaken me to my shoelaces. The wreckage of costumes, props, and a lifetime of old theater programs was scattered over the room like big moldy snowflakes in a crazy ankle-high glare from the still-burning flashlight. As I sagged down onto a trunk to catch my breath, I saw something that brought me right back to my feet again. An illustrated program from the King's Theater in Buffalo that gave me a new slant on the whole mess. It billed Seth Cameo as the man with a thousand voices, the perfect mimic. And the act that had followed him for a 30-week run was a girl whose face I knew well. I ran out of the theater into the nearest cab stand where I sent one driver to get the police over to the theater and with another, I headed for Manny Faber's place on Beachwood and what I was positive would be another murder. When I got to the front door, I knew there was no need to hurry. It was all over. Come on in, Marla. I've got news for you. It was Carla with a gun in her hand. And on the floor in the corner, her face tight with pain, was Mrs. Ruth Gaynor glaring hate up at me like a wounded panther. There she is, Marla. I recognized her as soon as I saw her. She's the one Peachy was waiting for outside the Lyceum Theater. They've been working together all this time to frame that slander suit against Faber. Yeah, yeah, I know. But I didn't expect to find you like this. What happened? She knew I recognized her and pulled this gun on me. The one she used on Seth Cameo, no doubt, huh? Uh-huh. She was going to use it on me, too. But I was way ahead of her. She's only in love with John Peachy Keene, but I was married to him for four years, and you don't live with a professional wrestler that long without picking up a few tricks. They call you the weaker sex. <laughs> What is it, Ruthie? Your elbow? Is it broken? Let me alone, you two-bit flatfoot. I'll call a doctor and get you fixed up. For one reason only, I don't even like to see a black widow spider suffer. More coffee, Miss Bennett? No, thank you, Mr. Faber. Well, I don't blame you. I've got no appetite either. You know, Marlowe, I always liked Ruth. And I thought she liked me. As long as you represented a buck, she did. And I've got to admit that she and the wrestler were clever, though. That stunt almost worked. She was clever. John Keene is 225 pounds of solid jerk. Yeah, it was all her idea. She was in love with Peachy, and when Frank died, she saw a great opportunity. Especially with that mimic being in town. Sure, Seth Cameo is an old friend of hers. She and Peachy wrote a highly slanderous script. She got Cameo to record it on Frank's machine, imitating Frank's delivery. Yes, and I broadcast it and stabbed myself in the back. Exactly. And we'd never found out any of this if a couple of other characters hadn't tried to cut in. First Cameo, who felt he'd been cheated when he learned the job he'd done was worth a hundred grand. Ruth had to shoot him to keep him quiet. Second little caller here. Hey, Marlo, please. With me, it was just good, healthy spite. Spite, huh? <laughs> What's stronger, baby, spite or dough? Well. See what I mean? Good night, Mr. Faber. Good night. Come on, Carla, let's go. We didn't go home directly. We went on our Beachwood Drive high into the Hollywood Hills park where we could look out over the sparkling, sprawling city. And then we talked about color, her life, relative values, the city below us, and the dark hills above. 
And then, as we watched the first faint glimmer of dawn rise in the east, we both realized something. Not original. Not very complex. And certainly not sophisticated, but very gratifying. In the final analysis, the best things in life, we both agreed, are still free. Know what I mean? Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Ted Von Eltz, Charlotte Lawrence, Barney Phillips, Tony Barrett, Peter Leeds, and Junius Matthews. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Oron. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... I didn't know it, but I was caught in a smokeout that led from a search for a lady in black, past murder at a highway inn, to gunfire in a crumbling warehouse. And all for a girl, already dead in the morgue. This fall, you hear them all on CBS. Red Skelton and Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen have joined the parade to CBS on Sunday evenings. And be sure to hear the contented hour with Dinah Shore tomorrow and every Sunday over most of these same CBS stations. This fall, you hear them all on CBS. This is Paul Masterson speaking. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison of the grave. I didn't know it, but I was caught in a smokeout that led from a search for a lady in black, past murder at a highway inn, the gunfire fling warehouse, for a girl already dead in the morgue. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Tonight's exciting story, The Smokeout. It never seems to fail. A sleepless night that leaves you with raw nerves and sandpaper eyelids is always followed by a day that never ends. A kind of long, tough day that keeps you on the move until life in the city finally reduced to no more than a confused, clatterous sink of exhaust fumes and an aimless mob of shallow people milling around, looking for nothing but a chance to con each other out of a lousy butt. And this was no exception. Because when I finally decided to quit to get out of it to go someplace quiet and relaxed, I found myself instead in a hurry all over again. I was on my way to a very public building on Spring Street at the stubborn instigation of one Detective Lieutenant Matthews of Homicide. Whose phone call 20 minutes ago had caught me as soon as I opened my apartment door. Uh, where you been, Marlowe? Don't you ever check in at that office of yours? And on days like this, Matthews, they don't give me a chance. What's up? Tell me all you know about Vera Hamlin, Phil. Who's Vera Hamlin? A girl. No fool. Are you real sure you don't know her? Positive. Am I supposed to? Uh-uh. Maybe she used another name. Pretty blonde, about five six, a sweet kid, apparently. I can think of a lot of women who fit that description, Matthews. Yeah, you could. But mm-hmm. this one wrote you a letter yesterday. I didn't get it. Then I haven't been in my office at all today. Why? Why don't you help? How do you know? Well, we picked it up from the imprint in an open pack of stationery in our apartment. Oh? Better come down and take a look at her, Phil. Take a look at her? Where is she? In the morgue. Oh. She was struck by a car last night. Accident? What makes you ask that, Marlowe? Your dubious tone of voice, Matthews. Well, was it an accident? Uh, I guess so. Maybe I've been a cop too long. I get suspicious myself on dark nights. can understand it. Come on down, Phil. Right away, I'll meet you there. Letter to you is one of them. Got the letter? 
No. No, I read the whole thing in from the lab and that imprint they worked on. She was worried. She wanted you to investigate something for her. You were supposed to call her today. Oh, anything about her? Yeah. She came to L.A. about six months ago from Omaha. Mm-hmm. She worked for a guy named Brasso. He's a produce wholesaler at 77 Market Street. Lately, she was seeing a lot of him after office hours. What's wrong with that? Nothing. But she was killed in front of Brasso's house at 2 a.m. as she was getting out of her car, and Brasso wasn't home at the time. Oh? He has a fair alibi. Puts him out on Highway 101 north of Santa Monica. Hey, excuse me, gentlemen. I'd better get the phone. Yeah, yeah, do it. Uh, what about the motives, Matthew? No motives. Well, then why are you so upset? What you... Why was she so upset? What did she want you for? That's not enough oh, for you to go, If I had huh? that one answered, I'd know where to oh, go from there. I know, but you're pinning yeah, a murder rap on somebody. What do you mean murder rap? I'm not uh, up to that. It's for you, no. All right, thank you. Excuse me, Mr. Hello, this is Matthew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A witness. Says it was murder. Still get a load of it. What? Yeah, give me that again. Yeah, a woman... Saw it happen, huh? Great. Who was it? The lady in black. Where'd you get that? It sounds corny. Where did you get that? It sounds... What? You mean there's a story about it out now in the L.A. Journal? Yeah. I'll be back there in five minutes. And listen, get a hold of the reporter who wrote that story and hang on to him. I want to talk to that wise punk. How do you like that? How do you like yeah, it? Yeah, Vera Hamlin murdered with an eyewitness to prove it. Only the police department is the last outfit in town to know. Come on, Phil. We're through this time. To buy a newspaper, find out what's going on. Matthews was boiling as we left the morgue and headed to police headquarters. We made one stop on the way to pick up a copy of the journal, which he read as I drove. The kind of smoky, well-illustrated sensationalism that caused issues, double police work, and false papers. exclusively to the journal tonight that she was an eyewitness when a mad killer purposely swerved his speeding car into curvaceous blonde beauty Vera Hamlin outside her lover's Brentwood home late last night. If that's journalism, I'll eat my bag. Keep reading. You're a cop, not a critic. Yeah, but I got taste. The lady in black will appear at police headquarters at 9 o'clock to reveal license number and description of the murder and the shocking death which police have already labeled accidental nuts. Come on, Mullen. I felt a little sorry for Matthews because the way things were breaking, the Vera Hamlin deal was a cinch to become one of those involved schoolball affairs. But nothing goes according to the book, and I was glad I never got a letter. Now it was none of my business. All I wanted to do was drop Matthews off, get away from the whole thing, and try to forget about it. But when we piled up behind the waiting squad car at headquarters, the gang of night beat the cops was draping the stairs. Stop them. Don't give you a break. And is your witness going to show? It's nine on the button. Where's the lady in How oh, do I know? I didn't find out there was a witness till I read it in the journal. Yeah, that was a dirty trick. Hiya, Hi, Abbott. You're an old-timer, Abbott. You guys ought to keep punks like that journal squirt in line. They just make it tough on everybody. Oh, don't blame us for that guy. He's burned up, huh, Marla? You blame him? You know as well as I do, the journal picked up that witness right here. Kept her under wraps until they had time to break the story. Well, he shouldn't let it throw him. You know, guys like that usually hang them. Sure, down. after the damage is done. Stop! Now I've had enough today, Matthews. Besides, nobody in City Hall signs my check. Good night!
if it was the memory of the girl's face in the morgue. Oh, maybe it was a stack of wrinkled tens on my desk that made me do it. But whatever it was, I went to my car, drove out past Santa Monica, and it took me an hour to get to Moon's Point on Highway 101. An isolated huddle of grimy filling station rickety six cabin auto caught in weather-beaten lunch counter and bar, squatting beside the highway. I pulled up at the parking lot and went into the bar where the source of the quaint name Moon Point met me. Moon himself. <laughs> he was round, pale, and soft as a lump of green cheese. What can I do for you, mister? Dave around? Dave who? Brasso. Want to see him on business. What kind Private of business? Private business. Oh. Okay. Sure, Brasso's here. Out in cabin number four there is Mr. Stipple. Oh? You can get that back there, there if you want to. But I don't think they'll have much time for you, fella. Why not? The late paper just come in. The L.A. Journal. Is that all? I got much later news than that for him. Don't seem to be much love lost between you and Brasso, I'll tell you. I believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, see? I used to be a driver for Dave Brasso, only yesterday I got canned. Thrown out, pull off my truck and fire for no reason at all. So? Oh, so I've been sticking close to him, just waiting for a chance to pay him back. And I've been finding out things, things you might like to know. Give me a for Well, for instance, he had a fight. A knockdown, drag out argument with that uh, Vera Hamlin girl last night. Just an hour or so before she was run over. She claimed he was seeing another woman. What's that proof, Baggy? She was found dead in front of his house, bud. You ended it up. And that's not all he did. I know why he's hanging around out here. Also, why it ain't gonna do him one bit of good. I got plenty to tell about Wait a minute. Hold it. Hold it. Okay. Yeah. That's Monty Stipple who opened the door to number four here. I gotta get out of here. But I got plenty to tell, bud. So when you're finished in there, come on over behind the grease rack at the filling station. I'll be waiting for you. I don't know how you feel, Dave. You're on edge. You got reason to be, but running back into town won't help you any. So they got a witness. He's already told it. Wait a minute. There's somebody outside here. Yeah, that's right. I want to see Dave Brasso. And uh, Mr. Brasso is pretty busy right now, mister. Not too busy to see me. Oh, you a uh, cop? No. And he must be a crummy reporter, so scram. Uh, you look Mr. Brasso up at his place of business some other time. You mean after he skipped town to keep the witness from putting a finger on him? Why, you were snooping. Wait. Who are you? What's your dad, soldier? Name's Marlowe, private detective. I'm here because Vera Hamlin wrote me a letter yesterday. Vera? Monty, get lost for a couple of minutes, will you? I want right. to talk to this guy. Don't you go think on, you better go let on, me... beat it. Well, okay. All right, soldier. Come on in. You want to see me? I'll take a good look. Well? Okay, so you're big, Brasson. Husky enough to run over somebody and kill him. Without even getting into a car. I'll let that one go by, soldier. Where's the letter? Locked up in my office. What's she saying? She wanted something to look into and said this was a good place to start. Ah, uh, jealous of a fool. Is that what the fight was about last night? Fight? You do find things out, don't you, soldier? That's my business. Well, maybe you know who this lady in black here in the paper is and what she's going to tell. Maybe. Might even know who was jumping up to try to kill her tonight and shut her up. Who was that? You mean somebody... Come on, Brasso. Let's stick closer to the truth. You're a lousy actor. For instance, Vera wanted me to come to this dump because you and Stipple are holed up here. Why? That doesn't concern you. It's business. Sure, and when a girl accidentally gets in the way of business, she's run over by it. Is that the way you work? You keep talking on the same thing, soldier, and I don't like it. I was in love with Vera Hamlin. 
Maybe you're trying to use that to nail me in a frame. Maybe you're a sneak for that stinking louse weather. Maybe you didn't get any letter from Vera at all, so get out of here and think up a new one. Your theories are getting way ahead of you, Buster. Who's weather? Jerk. I said get out! <laughs> Take that back for an answer, soldier, and you can get more of the same anytime you want it at 77 Market Street. That's a hair trigger left with 200 pounds of shoulder behind it. Piled me out of the door and flat on my back in the gravel. Which tallied my interview with him at zero with one minor exception. My spiteful informer Baggett had some basis in fact for his story, so I dusted myself off and made for the rear of the deserted filling station where the grease rack stood. There was nobody around. I waited a few minutes for him, and then I skirted wide around the auto court and looked in at the scaly window at the bar. Stipple was there with his nose in a beer glass, but no baggage. I circled the building quietly, found nothing but indignant spiders and dark corners, and decided to try the grease rack again. When the back door of the bar opened, and Moon came out with a flashlight and a pail of garbage. He was halfway to a rack of cans when he froze. Like a bird dog with one foot in the air. Holy mackerel. Flashlight stabbing at a man's hand, hanging out over the edge of a shallow ditch. Look. Look there. There's somebody laying in the ditch. Yeah. No wonder I couldn't find him. It's Baggett with a knife in his back. Continue with the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Smokeout. Even as death quietly hardened the hand at the edge of the ditch, the wheezing, pudgy circle known as Moon was already worrying less about why murder was sprawled at his feet and more about what the violent slaying of the truck driver was going to do to his roadhouse business as usual. Didn't make for wholesome listening. Big boss of that Monday stipple, all of them. They can take their trade and their troubled summers up. I gotta make a buck like the next guy, but I sure ain't gonna do it this way. Why, overnight, it just. Hey, wait a minute, Moon. What troubles are you talking about? Brasso and stipple, I mean. What is it? Come on, speak up. It may be important. To who? To me and the law. To bag it here. Maybe a girl who died a little ahead of her time. A girl who what? Hey, Mister, you're talking in circles. Yeah, sure I am. And we don't have time for that, do we, Moon? Here, let me. Are you going to talk? Well, okay, okay, I'll tell you. There's no international secret. Now, get your hands off of me. All right, but make it fast. The setup. What is it, Moon? Too much competition. Another produce outfit run by a guy named Mike. Uh, he he's been picking Brasso's trucks off along U.S. One O One every other night. Sometimes it's a well-planned accident, and sometimes it's sloppy hijacking, but all this is trouble. Trouble Brasso can't prove, is that it? Yes. That's the reason for Monday Stipple and the meetings out here. Stipple's supposed to get the proof for Brasso. Hey, There's a guy going to the car next to mine. Oh, that's Brasso, Marlowe. And like I said, I've had enough. For my dough, it's time to call the cops. Good luck, sucker. front by no more than 30 seconds, so as I ran toward my car in the wall of dust as high as it kicked up, I figured I had an even chance of catching up with him before he got back to Santa Monica and into heavy traffic. But I figured differently when I had one hand on the door of my car. I had to. Company said so. I'm holding a gun. Please don't move. 
She was standing someplace behind me, and when I did a toe, she moved around in a wide, careful arc until we faced each other across a chunk of dark night. It revealed only two things. One, she was holding a gun, and two, there was no mistaking her. This was a lady in black. Those car keys there in your hand. Throw them here, please. Now, wait a minute. I'm sure we can talk... Please, let me have them. Okay. Now what? Now, whoever you are, you can look for these while I'm hey, gone. Hey, listen. I don't want to be interfered with. Now, wait a minute. Oh, I get it. You're afraid something will jar the sale price you've set for Brasso, huh? Yep. What are you talking about? That ever-sneaking routine known as blackmail. But to be very specific, a mystery witness, you, the lady in black, who almost gets to the police to take a killer. Almost so she could scare said killer into a generous frame of mind when next they meet. In other words, baby, it was all an act of pressure play on Dave Brasso. Now it's time to collect. Do I go on? No, you don't. You just do as I say. You just turn around and walk. And think a little. Think about the pistol shots that you neglected to mention, which somebody took at me while I almost went to the police. Or did I do that myself? Also for the sake of Mr. Brasso's frame of mind. It's possible. I don't think so. Now go and start walking. You don't make much sense standing here. As I moved away from her, she backed off quickly toward a car that was nuzzling a high hedge near the far side of the roadhouse. So I knew that any move I intended to make had to be done right then and there. But she must have known just as much because that was when the gun she held got mad enough to start spitting my way. I dove to the gravel at my feet, then practically burrowed my way across a dozen uncomfortable yards of chopped rock to the shoulder of a line of trash cans. All of which left me scarred, safe, and in time to do nothing more effective than swear. I had a pair of teasing taillights on a green sedan that were already winking out of sight. Didn't help much. Well, what do you know? The private detective again. Well, what's it this time? Bill Brasso's simple as he in? No, he isn't. That's funny. No, I don't think so. I only think you're funny. The panic, Marlowe. Uh, Moon and I have been watching you comb that gravel out there searching for the key. We couldn't catch the chatter, but she certainly made you look stupid. And just so you don't go on looking that way, don't bother playing so wide-eyed about Brasso being in here either. You see, I know you know he isn't. <laughs> it won't work, sonny boy. Maybe a little pressure will. Um, I doubt it. I don't bend easy, Marlowe. Also, I don't happen to know where Brasso went. But just so nobody gets too upset or quick with a gun, maybe we ought to go back over to the bar to chat. Hmm? Moon's expecting me. Besides, it's cozier there. It won't be once the cops start pouring in. Incidentally, it makes it your turn not to play dumb. Huh? I mean Ernie Baggett being very dead out in the back. <laughs> Eden Stevens. Am I alone? Yeah. Okay. I know about Baggett. From Brasso? I said... I heard you. <sighs> Nice night. Hmm, Marlowe? You know, Skipper, you're making a big mistake. Hmm? Why? Protecting Brasso can't pay off anymore. You said I was protecting him. I worked for Dave Brasso, period. If he knocked off a couple of people, and I'm not saying he has, it's got nothing to do with me. What's done, done. Which doesn't include the girl, huh? Who? That witness? What's the difference? What happens to her? She's living on borrowed time right now, anyway, look at her. Why? Because of what she knows? No, no. Because of the way she handles what she knows. All that gab in the papers. You know, she's lucky those three shots that were thrown at her only came out of a pistol. Could have been a howitzer, considering the advance notice she gave. Hey, Moon. What? The cops here yet? No, they ain't. I will patrol six, five minutes, ten minutes ago. I sure wish they'd get here. <laughs> well, don't worry, they will. Tell Marlowe where to be. Hey. Hey, private detective. Come out of it. What's up? Around here, stipple, nothing. Nothing at all. Where are you going? To 77 Market Street. Brasso Produce Company. 
I think it's where both your boss and the lady in black are going to get together. And what gives you that idea? A hunch, Sipple. Just a hunch. Goodbye. Company was a half a block of corrugated metal warehouse crushed behind a wide loading ramp, which at 2 a.m. bustled with enough noisy fresh vegetable business to turn night into day. When I was out of my car, clear of the whirling electric hand my way in between fatted lettuce crates toward a cage marked dispatcher. I kept wondering how a guy who built an outfit like this single-handed could have possibly made the mistake I figured was his. I stopped wondering when a face that had been stolen from a hawk pressed itself close to the inside of the cage and yelled at me. Yeah, oh, Dave, please, I didn't know what I was doing. 
She was going back to you to tell you what she saw. You lousy. You would be double-crossing her. Oh, stay. Hey, no. hey, that's enough. No, no, it isn't. Please stay. I've got something to finish. Oh, no, no, no. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. 
featured in the cast were Lynn Allen, Barney Phillips, John Daner, Jack Crucian, Polly Bear, Edgar Barrier, Byron Kane, Hugh Thomas, and Bill Raleigh. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Orange. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... That wraps it up for tonight's show at 1001 Radio Grime Solvers. We really enjoy good reviews, so when you have a chance, say something nice about a selection of shows, or maybe suggest some to us. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.